Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome to the podcast. My next guest is Pulitzer Prize winner Will Bunch. His book, his latest book, is called After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics and How to Fix It. A provocative title, there's a lot in it. It seems particularly timely um, in light of the conversation around student loan forgiveness and what college means and what college means to uh, different folks, both who have had and haven't had access to it. So here I am with Will Bunch. I hope you enjoy our conversation and check out his book. Welcome to the podcast, Will Bunch, author of After the Ivory Tower Falls, How College Broke the American Dream and Blew Up Our Politics. What a title. Welcome, Will. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Thanks, Tanya. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. So it's a provocative title. Because I think a lot of us, or I, I think I think it's fair to say that very many of us assume that uh, college is a part of the American dream. We know that it's become really expensive and very inaccessible for a whole lot of people. And I think that your book speaks to the impact of some of that. Tell us about tell us about this book. I think the way you just put it is exactly right. In that. You know, I mean, college is still a dream. And, and you know, in, in my book, you know, my ultimate goal here is how do we start a conversation about making the college experience better? Because it's it, it's gone off track, but, you know, higher education still needs to be a goal. I don't need to tell you, you know, we're, we're at a moment of great political division in this country. And there's some people on the conservative side of the political debate uh, that would like to tear college down right now. And um, uh, I don't think that's the way to go. I think I think we need to figure out how we got to this point where college became so expensive and so unaffordable to so many people and really not accessible to too many people, uh, you know, people who were shut out and aren't getting the experience of higher education. You know, you know, how how do we how do we get back to that? It's important for so many reasons. You know, we need you know, we need an educated workforce, but we need an educated citizenry to, 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 you know, to keep our democracy going forward. You know, we need we need people who are critical thinkers who can who can evaluate, you know, science and climate change. I wanted to look at, you know, w- why college got to be such a struggle for so many people and how do we how do we get back on track? Well, it's interesting because it seems that your book kind of talks about the impact of two things, kind of the conflation of two things that resulted in this weird dynamic that we're in now. One is that it seems that the university sort of kind of became a central battleground in the culture culture war. So Mm -hmm. there became a lot of political antagonism toward universities and university climates. And then concurrently with that, college became so expensive that lots of working class blue collar folks were excluded from participating in, in, in the college dream. So how did those two things working together get us to a place where I guess the thesis of your book is that, you know, our politics are kind of broken as a result of all of this? 
Right. These things happened in tandem and they happened over a long time. You can really see the interplay between the history of college and the history of the United States. It, it's a story that really starts in World War II because that was when you saw a surge in people attending college. It started, it started with the GI Bill with this idea that we would give a benefit to our returning veterans, a, a college benefit. And um, I think I think a lot of educators and politicians were stunned by how many working class soldiers wanted to take advantage of this. You know, colleges were flooded with veterans and most of them were great students. You know, they, they blew their professors and administrators away with uh, how good they did in the classroom. And it, it showed there was this hunger among the, the vast American middle class for, you know, for education and for opportunities to do better than their parents did, you know, for, for a chance to maybe work with their brains rather than work with their hands. And so you, you saw this kind of golden age of college after World War II, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, you know, I, I won't go into great detail. The book kind of gives the history of this. But I would say the general attitude at this time was the college, college was a public good, that we, we should make it as affordable and accessible to as many people as we can. And so, you know, the key to that was just tuition was, you know, remarkably low to our standards today. It's kind of unbelievable how little people typically would pay to go to a public state university. And I'm talking about good schools like the University of California or the University of Michigan or Penn State, maybe a couple hundred dollars a year in tuition. Uh, university of California was actually free. And, you know, you saw this amazing growth, you know, co college enrollment increased by about sixfold in, in one generation. And then you had the 1960s, you had an era of campus protest because, you know, this, this new, young, idealistic population on campus used some of that critical thinking, I think, that they gained in their classes and, and turned a lens toward things like the Vietnam War and uh, racial segregation in the South. And you had a lot of protests and there was a, there was a conservative, it started a conservative backlash against college and higher education. You know, the, the idea that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be subsidizing uh, people to go to school to be critical thinkers, that, that maybe people should be paying more tuition and have some skin in the game. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan was kind of the avatar of that movement. You know, when Ronald Reagan uh, became president of the United States in 1980, you know, it started a period where, you know, Pell Grants, which were the main vehicle of giving people grants to go to college, increasingly paid less and less the cost of tuition. T tuition was starting to skyrocket at that time. And, um, uh, families were expected to make up the difference in loans. And it started slowly and it's, you know, snowballed and snowballed to uh, where, we're, where we got to yesterday with President Biden's announcement uh, where the uh, mountain of college debt in this country it has grown to $1.75 trillion, which is uh, more, than, more than all of Americans owe on all of their credit cards. Uh, it's a remarkable number. So speaking of President Biden's action in forgiving some of that debt, question for you. Does it exacerbate some of the tensions that you write about in your book because uh, the president's debt forgiveness program, while certainly being celebrated by many, is being criticized by some on the ground that you are forgiving the debt of people who were able to go to college, weren't working five jobs, they took out loans to go to college. Now you're forgiving some of those loans. And uh, the argument is that the people who are going to be bearing the brunt of that forgiveness are the folks who never undertook those big debt burdens in the same place. So where does the president's recent loan forgiveness kind of factor in your thesis? Right. So, so when you had that conservative backlash and when you had tuition 
uh, starting to rise in the 1980s and college becoming less accessible. Increasingly, more and more people from the middle class started getting shut out of college. You know, they started to question whether college was was worth it. And 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 this also this grew kind of into a resentment of the people who were getting these college opportunities. You know, there's there's been a lot of great research on on rural resentment of this distrust of elites. You know, people people in, in the Rust Belt or towns where factories have closed, they're not mad at the CEOs who closed their factories. They've they've turned their anger towards you know the, what they call the professional managerial class, um, journalists, uh, college professors, Hollywood movie stars, pe- people like that. Uh, you know, have become seen as, as the elites who who you know who look down on on rural people uh, who, who consider them deplorable and uh, who relish voting for somebody like Donald Trump because they feel they feel like a Donald Trump speaks uh, for their resentments. And you know, I, you have to, I think. I think a lot of people don't realize, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how many people actually are able to take advantage of college education in this country. Um, right, ne- right now, 63% of adults do not have a, a four-year bachelor's degree. You know, and probably a third of all adults have never set foot on a college campus as a student. It's understandable, especially given this history of resentment, that people now are going to look at this loan forgiveness for people who did have the opportunity to go to college and ask, why am I subsidizing this? Why, what, what, why should I pay for this? I mean, I mean, in the book, I, I address this by saying, if we're going to solve these problems, we can't just wipe out college debt and solve the problems of people who went to college. We need a plan that's going to help these millions of young people who aren't college bound, you know, either they don't have the interest or the aptitude or, or just don't think they have the wherewithal to do college. We need to have things like free trade schools, you know, like better apprenticeship programs like they have in Europe to prepare people for a career and a life where they'll, where they'll have a good job and where, well, they be, well, where they'll be respected in those jobs. You know, a lot of, a lot of these folks feel they're not getting as blue collar Americans. They feel like they're not getting respect. And that drives a lot of this. They're not. I mean, you know, I, I think that yeah. it's fair to right, say that it's not just a perceptual issue. They aren't. And it's interesting because, you know, in your book, you say that everybody falls into one of these four categories of people. <laughs> and I totally know my category because I'll just put it out there. Nothing in my life uh, would be as it is if I hadn't taken on a whole bunch of debt and gone to college and law school and, you know, those degrees and those institutions are still on my CV and I still get mileage out of them to this day. So, you know, when I heard about the thesis of your book, you know, I'm kind of like college and university and the debt that, you know, fortunately in my circumstances, I was able to manage, but many people can't. It was life-changing for me. I mean, college opened doors, uh, law school opened doors for me. You know, I didn't come from a wealthy family um, you know, with parents who could hook me up with a job. So it, it really made a difference. So of the categories of people in your book, one of them is left perplexed. And I should say to people that you don't mean left as in politically left or politically right. Yeah. It, I think the import is people who are left perplexed by this tension that we're in. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I'm a baby boomer myself. And, you know, when I came of age and, and when the people maybe a few years older than me came of age, even more so, America had a strong economy where you didn't necessarily have to have a college degree to get a job. You know, there were there were opportunities. There were there was they were still hiring people in factories. There were still union jobs. And, you know, if, if you had a good union job in the 1960s or 70s, you know, you could get, you know, earn enough money to buy a second house or a, a boat or whatever your hobby was and, and, and have a nice, have a nice middle-class life. And, and that, and that those opportunities have really eroded is you yourself, you know, knew Tanya when you were coming of age, you know, you had, you had to have that diploma to get somewhere in life um, that, that, you know, I mean, I mean, in your case, you went to law school, but, or if you want to go into industry, you know, uh, job recruiters aren't going to give you the time of day without, uh, without that diploma. If you come from a working class family, if you're not a family of means, and, you know, I mean, this, this especially affects black and brown families, because as you know, I mean, there's a huge wealth gap in this country where uh, the typical uh, black household, you know, has one twentieth the wealth of a typical white household and they, and they don't have the resources. So no, if you, so if you're a young African-American, you're smart and ambitious and you really want to go somewhere in a, in a, in an upper middle class type job, you know, you've, you've got to get that degree and the way it's structured, you're, you're not going to get that degree without taking out loans. So, you know, and, and, and this affects everything. It's going to, you know, it's going to affect your choice of career because you're going to pick a job that's going to make sure you have the money to pick, you know, you might learn about a, a job opportunity that's doing great public service work in the community, but it doesn't pay very well. And you're saying, well, I'd love to do this, but I, how am I going to pay back my loans? I can't take this job, you know, and, and you know, and, and we've seen young people make, make other just the life choices people have to make, you know, it's like, I'd like to get married and start a family, but I don't know if I can do this with this, you know, $50,000 loan on the books or, you know, how, how am I going to buy a house with this, with this outstanding debt? You know, people, people who are in their late twenties, who still have to live with their parents because, um, you know, they, they, they feel they're just, they just can't begin adulthood until this debt, this debt is taken care of. Bottom line is, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in a time when, if you say, you know, what's the emotion that's surrounded with college? You know, it, it's hope and excitement, you know, the possibilities that higher education offered. And and, and higher education, is still, you know, we still have a great system of higher education in this country that for the people who go to college. There's great professors and great schools. Now the overriding emotion seems to be fear. Am I going to go to the right school? Am I picking the right job? You know, sh should I borrow all this money? Is, is, is it worth it? What if I don't go to college? Are people going to look down on me because I don't have a degree? All of these emotions have, have kind of come to dominate our discussion around college. And I, I'm, I'm hoping we can I'm hoping we can turn the battleship around and get back to that place that we used to be, you know, a few decades ago. Well, it's interesting when you talk about how things have shifted um, over the years. So my grandparents, for instance, you know, my grandmother was from Jim Crow, Mississippi. She married uh, and they lived in Ohio. My grandfather worked for the GM factory in Ohio right. for forever. I mean, really, I think it was <laughs> the only job he had for decades and decades. My grandparents owned their house outright. They went fishing. It was like a normal, you know, they weren't wealthy, but they had a nice house. My grandmother, you know, didn't work. She, it was just sort of the life. Then cut to when I came um, of age, as you point out, it's interesting. You talk about how sort of, you know, choices are determined. I remember telling my parents I wanted to be an art history major because I really love art. 
And um, their response was, we lost the trust fund you never had. So <laughs> you need to go do something that's going to allow you to yeah. pay your bills. You know, hence the decision to go to law school. So if you kind of look at, you know, when I came out, you got a job, you know, you had the right, if you had the right credentials and you could check, it's easier to rely on the credentials getting you a job. Now it seems that we're in an environment where not only are the usual credentials not necessarily getting people a jobs, but people are taking debt to buy all of these useless credentials from these for-profit institutions that are meaningless uh, and really don't help them become more employable. So whereas once the degrees were a way of helping you get to the next level, now, uh, in a lot of respects, some of these degrees are absolutely meaningless and then just dragging people down because people are saddled with debt and they're never able to capitalize um, off of the purpose of getting it in the first place. So that's kind of a big problem now, too, wouldn't you say? Well, like yeah, for-profit colleges, absolutely. You know, that's, I mean, you know, I mean, you're talking about one segment, obviously, of colleges and it's not... Thankfully, it's not the dominant segment, but it's an important, but it's a big enough segment and, and millions of people have been, you know, for the most part, you know, obviously there's a wide range. Some of them are okay, but but many of these schools proved to be disreputable, you know, that they, uh, you know, a lot of these schools, you know, used boiler room type tactics to, uh, you know, do high pressure sales to, to recruit students, selling them on just what we've been talking about, you know, that you've got to have this credential this, this this diploma and or you're or, or you're not going to get anywhere in life and and we we can we can get that to you and uh, you know and, and they recruit students they encourage them to take the maximum amount of loans because the loans are guaranteed by the government that the school's going to get paid but the individual is on the hook right so for the money to, to pay it back and then they often provide minimal education you know at you know kind of disengaged adjunct low-paid professors and and uh, really little in career they don't really follow up on their career placement promises and you know so 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 millions of people got a raw deal from this and and again it, it gets back to the fear these these for-profit schools are playing on the fear that you that you can't one thing i think people need to to focus on when they think about what's got gotten wrong is this whole idea of is america a meritocracy you know it's this idea that was the, you know, the the advocates of the idea say, well, America is a place of equal opportunity. Everybody has an opportunity to reach their own level. And it's, you know, it's up to you and your merit to take it as far as you can go. And, and you know, a college diploma is the ultimate badge of, of, of merit if, if, you, if you earn that. And I, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that. One thing is the meritocracy is actually rigged, you know, elite families, use things like legacy admissions and colleges or, or you know, their ability to spend thousands of dollars on SAT prep to make sure that their kids get into the best schools that, that other, you know, working class folks don't have those advantages. But, but the other thing about a meritocracy is, again, I keep coming back to this number, but, you know, 63% who don't have a college degree. If you're saying a degree is, is the merit badge in our society, then you're telling 63 people that they're somehow deficient if they if they don't have which they're not it's a, i mean that's not true it's a lie but but this sense and and this this feeling that 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 people in the who don't have college diplomas that they, that they are being looked down on it drives our culture wars and and like i say in the book it it's 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 really come to dominate our politics 
you talk about these four categories of people, um, left perplexed, those who I think are left perplexed by this divide over college and the antagonism that uh, the things you've talked about have created, left broke, the left behinds, and the <laughs> left outs. Uh, can you kind of just give us a general sense of who all of these different groups of people are? Well, I think I think generally it, it's it's pretty simple. I think people's worldviews in this day and age are affected a lot by two big factors. One, you know, is, is their educational attainment, whether they had college opportunities or not. And the the other thing is, you know, people's age, you know, generation generationally, you know, when they grew up. So um, uh, the left perplex, you're 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 a little bit. Younger, actually, Tanya, than my than my vision of the left perplexed. It tended to be people more or in my age bracket. But the left broke are 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 these these uh, young young adults in their twenties and thirties that we were talking about who who have this massive debt and who who in many cases, not all cases, have you know embraced socialist political ideas instead of capitalism because they feel the system has failed them that badly. And when you look at people who don't have college degrees, the people, the people I call the left out are those people, like I said, like, like your, like, you know, like your parents' generation, you know, who, who, who came of age when working on, working in an auto factory could give you a nice middle-class life until, you know, eighties, nineties, two thousands, when that started getting taken away, when these factories started laying people off and outsourcing jobs and closing people down. And all of a sudden, uh, their their decision to not get a college degree, which made sense in 1970 or whenever, now now it doesn't make sense, or now it's hurting them. The left out are just young people from these devastated areas who just don't don't think college is for them and uh, turn 18 and they kind of drop off the grid. You know that uh, maybe they're living in their parents and working in a in a warehouse or a fast food restaurant, and you know they're they're into video games or YouTube. Um, you know, there's high rates of opioid addiction. One of the thing, things I guess you saw I talked about in the book is this growing problem that they call deaths of despair, which is people generally in the working class without college degrees who are dying at younger and younger ages from suicide because they just feel left out of society or, or from opioid addiction or, or, or alcohol addiction. I think of the four groups, that's the one we don't talk about the most because like I said, they, they disappear to some degree or they're, they're flying under the radar screen. But, you know, like I said earlier, I, I, I think we can't solve our problems of young adulthood just by forgiving people's college loans. We need to have programs and, and things for them to become more integrated members of, of an integrated society. It strikes me that college, at least in the traditional sense, you know, in the liberal arts sense, that four-year degree isn't necessarily for everyone. I, I do think that people should have like a basic understanding of, you know, some of the liberal arts basics, but um, I am not alone in noting a remarkable shortage of skilled laborers and electricians and contractors. Let me ask you this, how in this current environment do we make more room to educate people into those disciplines? Everybody talks about it. Everybody talks about the trades. Uh, there has to be room, right, to filter some of those folks, maybe some of the left outs, the left behinds, the left brokes, the whoever's into these areas where we really need people, you know? I mean, we query yeah, yeah. whether or not we need more art historians. We definitely need more contractors. 
You know, a- absolutely. You know, for the book, I went to this school. It happen- happens to be coincidentally pretty close to my home outside of Philadelphia. It's, it's called the it's called the Williamson School of Trade, and it's kind of it's kind of a fluky thing. This uh, millionaire of the mid nineteenth century who didn't have any heirs decided to give all his money to found this school. That if you're accepted, you get to go for three years. For it's it's it's, ma- it's male only, but um, uh, you go for three years and you learn a trade like carpentry or masonry or or uh, landscaping. Employers are tripping over themselves to hire these kids. They get a great education for what they're going to do, and um, uh, there's a real there's a real need for these. And you know, so I, I think there's a couple things. I think we absolutely have to expand these types of educational opportunities, whether it's trade schools, whether, you know, they're structured as apprenticeships or internships, because there is, there is the, the, the demand for these jobs that's, that's not being met. And there's, and there's people who would, you know, like to, like, like to get those jobs. And, and, and uh, a lot of them, a lot of them pay, pay well. I think we're starting to see employers take a look at, at their hiring practices. And, um, you know, I, I, IBM and I, I didn't get into this too much in the in, into the book. In fact, I actually did an article about this after I finished writing the book. But you know, I, IBM, for example, did a company wide thing where they went through all of their job categories, and they found about half of the job categories where they required a four year college degree that they that they didn't really have to, that that wasn't really necessary, and they and they removed those requirements. And you know, these companies, IBM's doing it, Google. Um, Apple, you know, some of your bigger employers are looking at, you know, are there jobs like IT that, that you know, don't, don't require a bachelor's degree, that they require specialized training, but that we can do that training in a year or two for, le- for less money. I have kind of mixed feelings. I think, I think there's some real advantages to doing that. I mean, obviously, it does help this, you know, left out cohort that's not getting good jobs and not moving ahead with their lives. But I think we do lose something if, if, if we make higher education just only job training, you know, only corporate, because um, as you know, I mean, there's a civic component to all this too. I mean, we want, we want, we want people who have job skills, but also who are thinkers, you know, who can think about climate change, who can think about what's happening to our democracy right now. And um, that Williamson trade school does have courses beyond just the, just job skills, you know, that they do, they do teach value, moral values and civics. I think the solution comes from a place like that. I mean, there needs to be a, a vast rethinking of what higher education is. I mean, I use the term higher education much more than I use the term college because we need a more expansive definition of what people can do and what they can learn after they turn 18. How would you change it? You know, how would you change or expand upon our current understandings of higher education? Well, one thing I one thing that I pitch in the book, and this is not a comprehensive solution, but I think it's I think it's an interesting part of the solution that would get us help us. I think it would have a lot of advantages, and I think it would help us refocus on, you know, what what we're doing here is we really should strive for a universal gap year for our eighteen year olds, uh, where. When people turn 18, right now, like I said, some people are dropping off the grid. Some people are just feeling enormous pressure to get into the right school and, and take out enough loans to get to get into that right school that they think they need to be attending. I would love to see the government fund, you know, civilian service programs, you know, like like climate change conservation related programs or or working in disadvantaged communities where, you know, f- for a year you'd be working on these projects and you'd be working with people 
from different backgrounds than yourself, because that's one of the big problems right now, right? Is we all, we live in these silos. You know, if you live in an, in an elite suburb, you hang around and end up going to college with other people from elite suburbs. And, you know, if you live, if you live in the Rust Belt and in, in, in a town that voted 80% for Donald Trump, you know, you're probably staying in that town and, you know, going to, going to the same church and, and, and clubs and whatever with those people. And in the current environment, you're getting distrustful and suspicious of the, of the Americans you don't know. I mean, the, these gap year projects um, could bring people together. I mean, it, it used to happen with the Army, right? People used to get drafted and, you know, you're from Brooklyn and you're in a unit with people from Alabama and Kansas and you meet different types of folks. And uh, the thing is, uh, we don't really want to encourage Warfare, but uh, you know w- w- the needs we have in this country are are you know positive civilian needs. I think the benefits of a gap year would be enormous, and again, it would be I think it would be a way of just re- you know we we've, we've been kind of on autopilot for the last couple of decades of you know what you're supposed to do in terms of going to college and what you're supposed to do with your life, and and even though things changed, parents who went to who, who went to college when it was a thousand dollars a year are steering their kids to do the same thing. And they're like, oh, well, now it's $70,000 a year. Well, I guess we'll have to figure out how to get the $70,000, you know, and maybe we should be rethinking major aspects of the system and, 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 and how to make opportunities available to everybody and not, not, just, not just the elites who can figure out how to get into the best schools and how to pay for it. I really do think that uh, there's something to be said for creating some kind of mechanism where you're getting people out of those silos just to see how other people in America live their lives. I mean, you know, it's interesting when you talk about these resentments of um, people in places like the, uh, the Rust Belt, but when you look at their economic situation, you know, they're living with a lot of the same tensions and economic fears and economic uncertainties that, uh, you know, lower income people in our cities are, frankly. Um, But uh, there are all of these other cultural issues that are being used to drive people apart. Will Bunch, after the ivory tower falls, uh, really, really uh, fascinating thesis. I hope that you will come back. And um, I really, I hope that we as a larger community of Americans will kind of reconsider how we are treating people and how we are educating our young people. Thank you, Will Bunch, for being here. Oh, it was a great conversation. Thanks so much, Tanya, for having me. I really enjoyed it. 